When I was in high school, my friend Leah and I memorized every word to We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. Okay, so to be honest, maybe we memorized like every fourth word. Um, but there we were, 2002, bopping around in my Dodge Dynasty, singing about events that we didn't fully understand and most that we didn't even know what they were. You have to forgive me here, okay? Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio. I'll leave it to you. <laughs> Peggy Curry sent me an article a few months ago that's called Choosing Love in a Dumpster Fire. Pastor Chris Dela Cruz reflects on that song, and apparently the song was inspired by a conversation that Billy Joel had with his 21-year-old friend who was lamenting about how crazy and how scary it was to live during the 1980s. Billy Joel had just turned 40, and he wanted to show that young man that actually every era of human history has felt equally as crazy to live through. So he wrote out, 118 important events and people from his lifetime into the song. I'm sure that we could craft a very interesting second version for the past 40 years. The chorus of the song goes, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. Though we didn't light it, we tried to fight it. De La Cruz notes that sometimes this world feels like it's on fire like a complete dumpster fire. Like our passage today notes, it can get very easy to get caught up in that dumpster fire. We can become obsessed with wars and rumors of wars. We feel persecuted. Our rights are being challenged. We're scared for the future of the children who are among us. It can be very easy then to find someone or something to blame. So we grasp tightly to the institutions that we love, the beliefs that we hold dear, and it's very easy to become afraid. It's very easy to start to see other people as our enemies, as the lions to our lambs. Preceding our Isaiah passage today, God is lamenting about what a mess everything is. So he promises he is going to fix it. A new creation, no more weeping, no hurt, no destruction, a new Jerusalem arise. I know we all wish that our world looked a lot more like that than our current dumpster fire. And God, any moment you want to bring that world to earth, we are ready. Jesus's era was its own special mess. Douglas Oakman, a religion professor at Pacific Lutheran University notes that Jesus was born into essentially a third world context under a military dictatorship. King Herod, as you remember, was trying to kill Jesus, and he ordered for the death of newborn sons. Can you imagine? When Jesus started his ministry, his listeners, they were awaiting the Messiah who would put out the dumpster fire and bring the new Jerusalem that's promised in Isaiah. But instead, they were living under Roman rule. Many Jewish leaders were just puppets of a Roman government. There was a handful of merchants, high priests, and leaders who did live in luxury, but the vast majority of the population lived in poverty, Jesus included. The local government was corrupt, inflation, landlessness were at a high, and peasants paid huge taxes but experienced very little freedom. 
Jesus' ministry took place just 60 years before the Jewish-Roman War and the violent siege on Jerusalem. By the time the Gospels were written, the war was already well underway or was already over. Many scholars believe that every single one of the Gospel writers actually knew that the temple had been destroyed, as Jesus prophesied in our reading today. Almost a million people are reported to have died during that war. In the 50 years before and after Jesus' birth, more than 30 different revolutionary movements, protests, and insurrections happened. Many of these movements were political against Rome, but a lot of them were religious, and they were aimed at the religious hierarchy of the day. You may have heard of one of them, this guy Jesus. He like goes into this temple and he starts flipping over tables and stuff. Yeah? Familiar? The active groups at the time, the Romans, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, they all believed very strongly that their way was right. They believed that the people against them were their enemies. There was dissent, there was anger, there was violence. The religious leaders were on the lookout for the king and the kingdom and the Messiah that would justify their cause once and for all. But Jesus was not the king who they expected. Instead, they found themselves in the presence of a poor, homeless craftsman who spoke in riddles, who fed and healed socially suspect people. Instead of the war, he offered forgiveness and grace. Instead of swords, he wanted them to share tables with the people that they hated and feared and judged the most. Jesus called out complacency, hypocrisy, and supremacy. He made a murderous mob drop their stones. He offered another way, a way of agape, unconditional love. Jesus broke down every social and religious barrier of the day to get to the people who were marginalized and oppressed around him. The poor, the lame, the enemy, the mentally ill, the enslaved, women, And when they came to kill him, expecting a violent uprising, Jesus went willingly to his death. This made no sense to the people who heard this message. And it makes really no sense to the power structures that we have in our world today. They were waiting on a Moses story. Bring on the plagues and the death. We're going to split the sea and drown half of those who have come against us. Put us on top, God. Give us a strong and mighty king. We want to be winning. But instead, Jesus' kingdom is flipped completely upside down. Instead of a kingdom... New Testament scholar and author Rita Haltman posits that Jesus offers us a kingdom, a family. That kingdom does not come as a war, not as a rebellion or a retaliation. Don Crable, in his book, The Upside Down Kingdom, writes, Jesus taught that the radical call of the kingdom of God undercuts all loyalties to human institutions. His unique message stood apart from the coercive and violent tactics of the zealous patriots of the day. Instead, he instructed his disciples to love enemies, bless cursors, and grant endless forgiveness. In short, he tells us to serve, not to dominate. Excuse me. It was a normal Friday 
on May 26th in 2017, Portland, Oregon. It was rush hour, and people were getting on the IMAX train going home. I'm sure that many were groggy and very eager to begin their weekend. And then without being provoked, one passenger began to yell and curse at two black teenage girls, Destiny Mangum and Walia Muhammad, who it should be noted is Muslim and was wearing a hijab. The disturbed man told the girls that they should die, that they were ruining his city and that they should go back to Saudi Arabia. Both of the girls are American. He claimed that as a patriot, he had free speech, and so he could say whatever he wanted. He cursed, was using violent language, and racial and xenophobic anti-Muslim slurs. Very soon after he began yelling, Talesian Namkai Mesh, a 23-year-old recent college graduate, got off the phone with his aunt when he heard the violent language being used. I have to go. There's two girls who need me. He stepped directly between the girls and the man and firmly but calmly told him, this is not okay. You need to get off this train. Please, get off this train. Ricky Best, a 53-year-old Army veteran, devout Catholic and father of four, also came and attempted to de-escalate the situation. And this took the belligerent man attention off the girls and put it on the men who were standing up to him. The girls were able to run to safety at the back of the train. As this happened, the man got agitated and smacked Talesian's phone out of his hand, getting into his face and taunting him, do something, I dare you, do something. It was then that 21-year-old poet Micah Fletcher had had enough. Micah had been bullied terribly as a young man, and after getting in the man's face, he pushed him towards the train car doors. It's after that that the man began to attack. Within just 12 seconds, in what looked like punches to onlookers, the man took out a pocket knife and stabbed each one of the men who had intervened in the neck. Almost immediately, the doors of the train opened and people rushed off in fear. The assailant was followed by passengers who were on the phone with 911, and he was arrested shortly nearby. Micah Fletcher received first aid on the platform, and he did survive his injuries. Ricky Best, father of four, died almost immediately at the scene. And to Lesion, he made his way to the floor in the middle of the train car, falling into the arms of Rachel Macy. Because the world is complicated, Rachel had just been released from police custody two days before. She was charged and later convicted for robbing a Shell gas station at gunpoint. She had seen the man beginning to yell at the girls, and she looked away. She was trying not to get involved because she was scared that as a woman of color, she would also become a target. When Talesian fell into her arms, she helped him to the floor, took off her shirt, and tried to stop the bleeding. She asked him if he could feel that God was with them. She told Talesian to look into her eyes. She told him that he was a beautiful man and that she was so sorry that the world is such a cruel place. She prayed with him. She hugged him. She held him. And at some point, Talesian reached up to put his hand on her cheek. Tell everyone on this train I love 
Rachel stayed with him. She held him until paramedics came. She said that she felt honored to be with him and to comfort him in place of his own mother. She knew that God had put her on that train for a reason. Talesian passed away days later in the hospital, and Rachel told the world of his last words, his kindness. Maeve Higgins' book of essays, Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them, was the inspiration for this message today. She asked the question that I wish we knew the answer to. Who is everyone? Did he mean the girls that he had saved? Did he mean the other passengers who were on the train, most of them who did not intervene or help? Did he mean his killer? All I know is that every last person on that train was a stranger to him, and his last words were that he loved them. In the midst of destruction and tragedy, there are these tiny little slivers of grace, evidence of an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom that looks like brave onlookers standing as a barrier between hate and innocence. Maybe it looks like a thief becoming an angel to the dying stranger in her arms. Sometimes it looks like an unfair yet heroic death. But that type of upside-down love, it's easy to spot because it always looks like Jesus. Instead of supremacy, servanthood. Instead of hoarding, sharing. Instead of competition, community. Instead of swords, calming words of love. Thy upside-down kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Unfortunately, even after being sentenced to two back-to-back -back life sentences, the white supremacist who attacked these innocent people has continued to defend his heinous actions. He considers himself a patriot, He's very proud that he killed, and he only wishes that he had killed more people. And while talking about the violence of white supremacy, I do want to make it very clear this morning that any voices espousing white supremacy or supremacy of any kind, for that matter, they are not the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. Xenophobia, anti-Semitism, homophobia, Republican phobia, Democrat phobia, those voices and those leanings, they are not the path of our Savior. And that's because we are called to love our neighbor as ourself. We cannot possibly be moving in love for our neighbor when we fear, demonize, or speak violence against one another. Our Luke passage tells us to beware voices that come in Jesus' name to lead us astray. 1 John 4 tells us that we will know how to identify those false prophets and those voices. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete amongst us, so that we will have confidence on the day of our judgment. In this world, we are to be like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Horrible things are going to happen in this world. I wish they wouldn't. But when they do, it's all too easy for us to point a finger and find our enemy. 
It's easy to look away or flip the channel. It's tempting to just throw up our hands and say, you know what, I give up. Let the dumpster fire burn down around us. But we have a savior who put on flesh, who lived among us and who showed us the way. In Luke's gospel, Jesus gives marching orders for when it feels like the end of the world. There will be war. There will be insurrections. There will be earthquakes and famines and pandemics. Followers of Jesus' upside-down kingdom may be persecuted, arrested, but Jesus never promises an earthside victory. His followers are not going to be given swords and weapons to defeat their enemies. No, they will be given words and wisdom. They will be giving a loving testimony to a life-changing Savior. Jesus warns that through following and sharing his upside-down kingdom, they may lose their very lives. I love the voice translation of verse 19. By enduring all of these dark things, you will find not loss, but gain. Not death, but an authentic life. Most likely, none of us are going to have a moment like Talesian and Rachel Macy had on that train that day. I pray we never do. Instead, our life is full of tiny, trying moments. Our everyday, mundane, dumpster fire adjacent life is our authentic life, and it is the only one we get. Everywhere we go, we will have opportunities to bring that upside-down-looking kingdom earthside. And these moments of our life are nuanced, they're mostly small, but they are also open moments to live into our call to serve and to love probably the hardest people. Chris De La Cruz writes, amid fire from the sky proclamations, the Bible presents a surprisingly consistent message throughout. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God, love God, love your neighbor. Despite everything, I still believe in that basic call for us to love even during this 21st century dumpster fire. I have no illusions that love will extinguish all of the fires around us, but love, real love that speaks truth, works collectively towards justice, that is world-changing. To echo Billy Joel, even if we didn't light it, we've got to try to fight it. And we fight with our love moved to action. Tell everyone on this train, in this target, in this voting line, at this family reunion, in this church, tell everyone I love them. Amen.